Good morning and welcome to the Stern Policy Center here at Hudson Institute. I'm Ken Weinstein, President and CEO of Hudson Institute. I'd like to welcome our audience uh, here at Hudson as well as the C-SPAN viewing audience. Hudson Institute is dedicated to American leadership and global engagement for a secure, free, and prosperous future. And key to American leadership is continued American technological preeminence. And given that that's the case, I'm delighted to be able to welcome and introduce Undersecretary of Defense for Research and Engineering, Michael Griffin, here at Hudson, here to Hudson Institute. Uh, Undersecretary Griffin, uh, will be speaking today in conversation with senior federal Rebecca Heinrichs on precisely this question of American technological preeminence and how to preempt our great power competitors and rogue actors from exploiting these technologies against us or against U.S. interests. Undersecretary Griffin, in effect, serves as chief technology officer for the Secretary of Defense, which means that he looks at uh, current defense capabilities, looks at how to improve them technologically, looks at defense technology transformation, how to hedge against uncertainty. He's an aeronautical engineer by training, uh, most recently taught at the University of Alabama at Huntsville before returning to the Department of Defense. He, of course, served as administrator of NASA from 2005 to 2009. Prior to his service at NASA, he was head of the Space Department at the Johns Hopkins University Applied Physics Laboratory, and he also, of course, served as President and Chief Operating Officer of InQtel, a private nonprofit enterprise funded by the Central Intelligence Agency to identify and invest in cutting-edge technologies that serve national security interests. As I mentioned, uh, Undersecretary Griffin will be engaged in conversation this morning with Hudson Senior Fellow Rebecca Heinrichs. Rebecca is well known in defense circles as a, uh, both for her work on missile defense and on other policy issues. She's frequently called to brief on, on Capitol Hill at the White House at the Pentagon. She's a former congressional staffer who helped launch the Missile Defense Caucus, writes regularly for the Hill, is a frequent guest on Fox News as well. So without any further ado, it's uh, my pleasure to turn it over to Rebecca. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ken. Thank you all for being here. Um, so what I'd like to do uh, this morning is have, um, Dr. Griffin has asked that I call him Mike, so I'm going to call him Mike, but my, my, my upbringing is, is telling me that I should not do that. But, um, but Mike is going to, to his, um, um, I've, I've known Mike for, for several years. Um, I am thrilled, as many of you are, uh, that he is where he is at this time in history because I think um, he, he is the man for the job. So. Thrilled that you're there, thrilled that you're here, sir. And I'm going to go ahead and turn the floor over to him and let him talk for a while about his priorities, where he sees the current landscape, and what he, um, how he's going to prioritize um, um, over the next um, uh, coming months and years. And then, uh, and then he and I will engage in conversation. And then if you have questions, please just go ahead and write those down, because I'm going to save some time at the end so that you all can, can um, participate as well. Thank you. I'll uh, try not to spend too great a length of time pontificating, um, but let me maybe maybe set some context. Uh, this the job I'm in is a new job. Um, it has existed at significantly lower levels in the organization before, uh, but not since the Goldwater Nichols Act of 1986, which created AT&L, Acquisition Technology and Logistics, as an entity. Not since then has uh, the R&E organization uh, occupied um, undersecretariat level stature. Uh, since it's been 32 years uh, since the enactment of Goldwater Nichols, uh, since we've had a, a major reorganization of the department, uh, I think we can expect this particular instantiation to remain around for a while as well. So uh, I'm, I'm the first occupant of the office at the undersecretary level, but I think we can expect many more. Uh, and, and my primary purpose is to get the thing started off right and set the proper tone for what we really ought to be doing. So what ought we be doing and why? Um, for that, I have to pull on a little bit of history, uh, some of it recent, some of it uh, of longer standing. Um, I'm going to start by saying that in the United States, we've been on holiday for 25 years. 
um, and maybe a little bit more since the fall of the Berlin Wall and the, shortly thereafter the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, at that time, China was not a great power. Uh, Russia uh, was devolving from great power status into a much more uh, fractionated regime. Uh, we had not seen, of course, Putin had not risen to the top. Uh, at that time, it would have been really unimaginable for someone to stand up and say that the dissolution of the Soviet Union was the greatest tragedy of the 20th century, uh, as Putin has since stated. Um, I think that's for you. <laughs> I'm sorry. So, yeah, so we'll just <laughs> turn that off. Um, figure out how to turn it off later. Um, so yeah, we would not, in that in the early '90s, have envisioned uh, island building by China. Uh, preemption of international waters or the attempt to preempt, preempt international waters with uh, rather bold territorial claims that uh, no other nation in the world uh, would, would recognize, never mind lay claim to. Um, we just, you know, didn't, didn't see and couldn't have anticipated those things. So for at least a couple of decades, the United States enjoyed uh, a degree of aloneness at the top of the global power ladder um, that really we'd not, not seen for a while in, in history. Uh, it had been quite a while since uh, a single great power uh, was so unchallenged. And I, my personal opinion is we kind of went to sleep. I, I, I was in the Pentagon when, when the wall came down, and I was in the Pentagon when the Soviet Union dissolved. I had not yet gone over to my third incarnation at NASA. Um, so, you know, watching those events from a seat in the Pentagon uh, at, as a deputy at the missile def at the Strategic Defense Initiative Organization, the ancestor of today's missile defense agency, watching those events occur, um, I, I will say, and, and not not as Monday morning quarterbacking, it it bothered me a lot because we started talking about the peace dividend as if that was going to be a perpetual entitlement, and. Um, there is a saying about uh, optimists and pessimists, which I love, which is that an optimist is a person who believes we live in the best of all possible worlds, and a pessimist is a person who's afraid that might be true. <laughs> so in the early and mid-90s, I frankly was, was quite cynical about the peace dividend. I was quite cynical about the practice that, that uh, uh, the Defense Department and other agencies of government aided and abetted of, of uh, uh, allowing companies to merge from many competitors into a few large uh, super companies. I did not think that, that, I did not believe that there would be a peace dividend that would last out the rest of my life, and certainly not into my children's and grandchildren's. And I, I did not believe that um, reducing our ability to have internal competition among many corporate competitors was in our long-term long -term best interests. Um, so you can chalk that up to uh, premature old age and cynicism, because in the early 90s, I was in my early to mid-40s. And maybe, maybe too young to be so cynical, but I was anyway. Um, so if we fast forward in a couple of years, a couple of decades, I, I think it is now observable in hindsight that we failed to continue to fund the practices that had gotten us where we were. 
which was at the very top of the technological heap. Uh, the United States, w from the time that we entered World War II until it was ended, was about three and a half years. Uh, World War II lasted for six years. It was our presence and our technological engineering production preeminence that allowed the war to be brought to a close. Um, as regrettable as it may be, uh, that the war ended with, you know, the first use of nuclear weapons. Uh, it did end the war, and I think there's no historian alive today who would say that more lives were lost because of that than would have been caused by an, in, by an invasion of the Japanese mainland. Um, so it was America's technological preeminence that brought an end to World War II, that won the Cold War, and, and that got us to the place where we could fall asleep at the switch in terms of maintaining that preeminence. By the time, you know, we looked around in, in call it 2015, you know, 25 or so years later, uh, it was and remains today observably true that while in, in many categories America still leads the world and in company with our allies and, and partners in the Western nations still leads the world in many areas of technology with regard to certain areas in defense, science and technology, really we just don't anymore. And that's a hard thing to say and a hard thing to hear. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that, that in area of hypersonics, to pick one, uh, both China and Russia are observably ahead of where our current state of practice is. It's not ahead of where we could be, but it's ahead of our current state of practice, and we're playing catch-up ball. In the area of microelectronics, in the time of which I spoke of, early 90s, everybody bought American microelectronics because they were the best. They didn't buy them because we were making people buy them. They bought them because we had the best stuff. Now, 80% of microelectronics, if I understand the figure correctly, um, come from Taiwan. Not that Taiwan is not a, a reliable partner, but they're not coming from America, and Taiwan is un, un, uh, uncomfortably close uh, to a nation which in many ways has declared itself to be an adversary of the United States, a, a World War II ally which is not an adversary. Meanwhile, other, our World War II adversaries are now allies. Um, I mean, this is an unfortunate turn of events, but it's something we must pay attention to. Uh, microelectronics undergirds everything we do in a way today that it did not even 25 years ago and certainly not when I started in the business 25 years before that. Um, today, even if, and this is a big if, which is not even true, even if our defense industry were not dependent upon or solely dependent upon civilian microelectronics, um, I often ask, you know, if, uh, if we are victims of malware or undesired features in the microelectronics that we buy from offshore, if, this, if, if another nation can bring about the civilian, the collapse of the civilian economy through such features or through such malware, in what sense can the Department of Defense have, have been said to defend the nation? I mean, if you think about it, the purpose of our national security community writ large <clears throat> is not only to defend our bricks and mortar, but to defend our economy and our way of life. Um, if we cannot rely upon our software and the controllers that that software implements, if we cannot fully trust and rely upon the microelectronics and software we purchase, and implement, then in what sense can we be sure we have defended the nation? It's, it's not a comforting thought. Um, so what do we have to do? How do we have to reinvest to get 
American microelectronics back at the top of its game to where not because we subsidize it, but because economically it competes with the best in the world and becomes once again the first choice. How do we develop hypersonic systems that can hold Chinese assets at risk in the way that they can hold our assets at risk? How do we expand and extend our missile defense system um, to be everywhere all the time instead of waiting on the ground uh, in case an adversary reentry vehicle shows up in the skies overhead? Uh, that's the last place, not the first place, that I want to start the engagement. Um, we have, so, so the, the grounding principles behind the Undersecretariat for Research and Engineering are rooted in the National Defense Strategy released in, in January. This is the first national defense strategy in a very long time that, in my opinion, has uh, had real meat to it. And even the unclassified version of the strategy is unmistakably blunt, uh, a characteristic I share. <laughs> the, um, the strategy calls out uh, areas of current practice that need to be addressed, but it also calls out 10 or a dozen areas of modernization priority, areas in which the department and the national security community in general must modernize to get ahead and keep ahead of our adversaries. And that modernization is exactly, that, that, that set of priorities is what has been handed to the research and engineering establishment uh, to address. My job is not F-35. You know, my job is what comes after F-35. What, what are we doing to modernize our way of war and the weapons we bring to it that we don't have today. And, and so those 10 or a dozen or so priorities that, that are called out in the national defense strategy, everything from artificial intelligence to microelectronics to directed energy weapons to more comprehensive missile defenses to more comprehensive space offense and defensive capability across the board, uh, those are my priorities. So, and, and that's why. The, the history lesson is, is why they are priorities and, and why I believe and why the Secretary has said that Congress was, was wise to reorganize the department to address these priorities because the department, frankly, would not have reorganized itself. That's just too hard. Um, so let me stop there. Uh, Rebecca, I'm happy to answer your questions and happy to engage with the audience as best I might be able to do so. Wonderful, thank you. Um, I, kind of, I want to start sort of bigger picture policy, and then, and then if I could kind of zoom in a little bit and ask you some more technical questions. Um, one of the things that um, has been that I have perceived as a cause for how we've how we've gotten behind is that there's still sort of a even bipartisan consensus that one of the ways to, to uh, maintain stability is to have parity between peers. Um, and uh, this idea, it's, in, it's, it's, it's very popular in the missile defense community. You know, if, if we don't want to have an arms race with the Chinese and the Russians, you know, we can't go beyond parity. Um, I know that is not your view. Um, could you uh, speak to that point? Well, in, in my view, the concept of obtaining parity is intellectually bankrupt. Um, the way to, uh, look, the United States um, after World War II, through the decisions and actions of some very far-seeing gentlemen uh, uh, at the top of that group, people like George Marshall, uh, who was both Secretary of State and Secretary of Defense at different times, as well as Chief of Staff during World War II, um, the United States recognized, those people recognized that uh, the necessity of a, a, world a, a worldwide rules-based order um, having at its root principles uh, such as the rule of law, 
there's a relatively free movement of trade and money and capital the capitalist enterprise um, the uh, sovereignty of, of nations uh, that that rules-based order, the rule of law, the kinds of things that underlie Western principles uh, that, that are, are deeply rooted in the American DNA, if you will, and, and in Western civilization generally. Um, that American-led and buttressed international order has served us well for over 70 years. We've not had a major global conflict for over 70 years. Yes, we've had brush fire wars. Yes, we have had times when Americans did not fully adhere to our own best principles. Um, but those are bumps in the road. They're not their strategic path. Um, when we allow nations who clearly do not believe in a rules-based world order, do not believe in national sovereignty, do not believe in fundamentally capitalist principles of movement of, of money and people and trade. Um, when we have nations that declare themselves and global powers as, as Russia has declared itself to be an opponent of American influence, China declares itself to be in opposition to American influence what they're really declaring themselves to be is opponents of a worldwide rules-based order with international norms along the lines I've spoken uh, in favor of um, uh, an autonomy that, that they direct. And that ought to be unacceptable to Westerners generally, to those who adhere to Western, civil, uh, Western principles, and, and to Americans. That ought to be unacceptable. The only way to discourage and deter such people is to be clearly so much more powerful than they that they choose not to fight. If we struggle for, if we strive for parity, then we are always leaving room for a slight change on the margin to result in um, greater capability on an adversary's part than our own, and that is a very tempting situation for them. There is always a temptation, if a small gain is made that can be decisive in the outcome, to, to use that while they have it. Um, so, so parity is the adversary's friend, not our friend. The way to maintain the relative degree of peace we've had for the last 70 years, in, in contrast to centuries of warfare before that, uh, the, the way to maintain that degree of relative peace and to, ex to extend and increase the degree of that peace is to be so powerful that no one believes ever that they could prevail in a conflict. Now, is that costly? Yes, it is costly. It is very expensive. It has used a substantial portion of, fortunately, a very rich American economy for 70 years. It is expensive. It is trivially cheap compared to the cost of the war that we avoid. Uh, the cost of World War II was, I, I, I can't calculate, the, I, I don't have a good figure for the economic cost, but it must have been measured in trillions, even in then-year dollars. And it was, according to the best historical estimates, I've been able to find some, you know, 50 to 60 million people dead. You know, 50 to 60 million people, and some estimates are higher. I think there are none that are lower. This is 50 to 60 million individual lives whose, whose lives were as valuable to them and their families as any of us in this room today. Those lives were not less valuable because only 500,000 of them were Americans. They were people's lives. This, this is the cost of global conflict um, that we avoid by being so strong that adversaries are not tempted. So parity does not achieve that goal, and, and I do not support it. 
Fortunately, my boss agrees. His words repeated over and over are, we need to be in a position of dominance by 2028. His goal was not parity. Um, so. And um, that's great. And I think that also um, really explains well why this characterization, you know, I often hear, you know, that, that, that we're overly worried about China and Russia because if you look at the amount of money that the United States spends on defense versus theirs, um, ours is so much bigger that clearly we have superiority. But um, we spend ours so much less efficiently we that we don't have that kind of a, we don't have as much of a lead as the monetary comparison would have you believe. And, and not only that, but we're trying to do different things. You know, our, our mission is different and we're trying, we're trying to do very different things. Um, but having said that, you, you already mentioned specifically in the area of hypersonics. So and one thing I tell people who make that argument is you have to look and see what the enemy, what the adversaries are investing in. It's not just amount, the, the, the total money, but the, what it is that they're, they're investing in and what they're trying to hold at risk for the United States and, and our interests. So you, you spend a lot of time talking about hypersonics, but can you, can you explain to us why that in particular, that threat, to the extent you can in an open, unclassified setting, why is that such a concern of yours? And then, um, and then I'm just gonna ask it now and have you touch on that. In terms of defending against it, is it, what is the hard part about it? Is it sensors or is it shooters? Or is it sensors and shooters? Well, let me start with the last question first, then, and, and I'll, I'll try to give a more comprehensive and regrettably long-winded answer to the first part. So the hardest part of hypersonics is the sensing, frankly. The, the shooting is not, it's, it's frankly one of the easier uh, targeting tasks we would have in the, in the missile intercept world, um, because uh, attacking hypersonic vehicles themselves are relatively fragile during their phase, long phase of cruise flight. Uh, they're fairly easy to, to destabilize. Uh, they're, they're in a very difficult flight regime and their decoys are not possible. They, they glow blight, brightly in the infrared. Um, if they're going to reach their target, they have to be in relatively straight line trajectories. Yes, they can maneuver, but they can't maneuver in, in their cruise phase as, as easily as an interceptor can maneuver. And so if you can see them coming, and if you can get them during the vulnerable phase of flight, the, from, from a guidance guy's point of view, and I'll say here I used to teach the subject from a guidance guy's point of view, um, the hypersonic intercept during cruise is, is not the hardest problem we have. Now, if you let them get into terminal phase where we've observed that they can pull many, many Gs, that then becomes a hard target. So if you allow a, uh, an attacking vehicle to get close enough to begin its terminal dive, and the terminal dive might be from 100,000 feet, onto a carrier battle group, if you let them get that close, you're probably dead meat um, because that's a very hard intercept problem to get it at that point. So the challenge with hypersonic vehicles is to know that they are headed your way from several thousand kilometers out in time to get your defending asset into the battle space. Um, Frankly, right now, we just don't have. Um, there are areas, of course, if, if we were, uh, we were a uh, landmass nation like Russia, uh, knowing that an attacking vehicle was coming from several thousand kilometers away would not be so difficult. But what we are trying to do is to maintain uh, a certain degree of global order, uh, largely through maritime power projection which centers and has centered, you know, since the Japanese sunk our battleship fleet at Pearl Harbor, uh, has centered around carrier battle groups and submarines. Um, and the, the main way in which we project American tactical power is through the carrier battle group. Well, a hypersonic weapon, because we don't wallpaper the surface of the ocean with radars to, uh, to allow us to know when an attacker is coming, uh, largely in, in the current environment, we don't see those things until they're way too close for comfort. So the sensor problem 
is is the critical one. We we need and do not yet have uh, global, persistent, timely, accurate knowledge of of what's going on in space and the upper atmosphere, and and that's what we have to have. So, from my point of view, on the defensive side, the 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 sensor challenge is the hardest one. Now, why is this such a threat? Well, when we talk about our relative level of expenditures in defense between us and, say, China or Russia, uh, or any other in some unknown future putative adversary, um, you mentioned that we have to spend more because we have to do so much more. Well, that's exactly right. See, the defense has to defend against everything all the time. We don't seek to be an attacking nation. We seek to defend and promote a stable world order. So we can have no areas of vulnerability. An adversary nation only has to win once. We have to win every time across all theaters. That's a serious challenge. Um, the offense can seek out our weakest point and concentrate its efforts there. So at present, the United States has actually, given, uh, given adversary capabilities, uh, a relatively impressive missile defense capability. Uh, it, is, it is my assessment that we have quite a good capability now against reentry vehicles in their mid-course and terminal defense with THAAD and, and uh, SM-3 and SM-6, uh, our, our Aegis systems, we have relatively good missile defense capability for, for a relatively limited attack. Uh, I don't think we could withstand an ICBM onslaught by Russia, but that's not, not our most immediate threat. We have very good air defense capabilities. But hypersonic systems, the way that they are built and flown and targeted, overfly our air defense systems and underfly our missile defense systems. So China has, uh, with over the last decade, with great care, uh, developed a tactical system capable of reaching out for ranges of several thousand kilometers that overflies air defense, underflies missile defense, and can hold our assets, our forward-based assets, whether land or, or maritime, at risk. Um, I, nothing I'm saying here is classified. You can find these assessments in open literature, Aviation Week, for example, or other things. I'm not putting any numbers on anything. I'm just saying that this is the general level of capability. Um, but that's critically important because that's a tactical capability that an adversary has developed that, is, that holds what for us are strategic assets, carrier battle groups, and forward deployed forces on land at risk. Because for us, these are means by which we project strategic power short of nuclear deterrence. So by allowing that non-parity to continue to exist, and it's non-parity non on the adversary side, we allow their tactical systems to leverage our ability to project strategic power, leaving us no option in the case of um, aggressive behavior on their part, leaving us no option except either to accept their behavior or go nuclear. I don't think we want to do that. And so uh, this is an area where we must see their hand and raise them one. Uh, we must at least be able to defend against their use of hypersonic weapons, should that come about. And we must be able to hold their assets at risk in, with systems similar to but better than what they have fielded. And that's why this is so important to me. It's, it's the leverage of a tactical asset on our strategic intentions. Um, and, and on that point then too, 
I mean, so you said s sensors. So we got to have um, we got to have better space sensors. We ha we have a. Unfortunately, the only way that I know to be able to, in my phrase, see them coming is is from space. I, I mean, if I had enough. If I had enough ships with radar in the right places and enough radars on land masses that where we have some control, then you could do it that way. But um, we don't, <laughs> and so and so, you know, that that's an impractical solution to the problem. The only way I know to surveil the required area at the tracking level of accuracy we need is from space. And, and General Hyten, um, Commander of Strategic Command, has said the same thing. Um, he's also made the point that having a, a, a robust space architecture, um, uh, or even just be one better than the one that we've got, that that would um, also significantly qualitatively uh, squeeze out more capability from our current systems, even against the ballistic missile threat. Oh, of course, yeah. So, yeah. so it's, it's, it's not like it's going to get just at this high-end threat. It also will significantly improve the entire system against the threats that we're seeing now from North Korea, et cetera. So that's expensive. Space sensors are expensive, um, worth the cost. Um, of course, I agree with you on that. But, um, but, 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 but you, you talked about how, you know, in your job, you're you're looking at over the horizon, but some of this stuff is not that far over the horizon. It's sort of near horizon. So how do we, um, and, and there was no money for this kind of thing in this latest Missile Defense Agency budget. You know, there was about $11.5 billion for current programs and expand current programs, but if we're gonna talk about space sensors, there's gonna be a lot, there's gonna be more money in there. Um, so can you, can, you, can you talk about that? And then also just the need to go Faster. So you're talking about long term, but again, I would still consider the things that you're talking about. Because we're behind, we got to go faster. General Hyten has talked about the need to go fast. How do we get the, the the necessary funding for these priorities? Get them in the budget. Get cracking on them. Um, and then, especially not just because of the the partisan politics in Congress and all that kind of stuff, but the bureaucratic inertia that exists that always seems to be slowing down really good big picture policy initiatives. Well, let me try to get get at that then. Um, so, first of all, for budget priorities, um, there is a so so the national defense strategy was released in January, and until then, I think it could be fairly said that the department had not, since the last administration, laid out new priorities. Okay, that's now been done. Those priorities are available for anyone to read. Um, no one is trying to hide them or keep them from you. The priorities are, are clear. Um, it, the, the National Defense Strategy openly states that we have returned to an area of global power competition and that the United States must recognize that and prevail. Um, we've laid out our technical priorities if you think we've missed one, drop us a note. Uh, there's no, there's no pride of authorship there. Uh, really, uh, we're happy to add priorities, but we have, I think, a pretty good list. Obviously, since the since the report came out only in January, and the team for this administration, I. I was confirmed. I was not confirmed until three weeks after my job officially started. Uh, it, we've been. It's been difficult to get appointees through in in the Trump administration. Um, some of that has been because of of just the normal churn of of doing business as you change administrations, and uh, some of it is because, frankly, not everybody. Accepts the results of the election, uh, but it has been notably more difficult to get appointees on board in the Trump administration. But I think most of the last of us are now in place at DoD. So of course we have to reshape the budget. Okay, the the budget that we inherited, the plans that we inherited are not the plans going forward. We're making new plans. We're going to reshape the budget. If you look at the FIDEP today, there is exactly zero dollars allocated against any of these new priorities. I mean, how, how could it be otherwise? 
So our task, uh, you know, the fiscal 19 budget is, is already largely prepared. We will work at modifying it on the margins, but our real task is to reshape PB20, President Budget 20 and, and beyond. Um, I have a real sense that not bipartisan, but nonpartisan thoughts are, you know, largely uh, governing this renewed vigor in American defense preparedness. Um, I'm, I'm personally getting acceptance from both sides of the aisle, uh, and nobody's asking who I voted for or why. They, they just want me to do my job. Right after this meeting, I'm headed up to the Hill uh, for just those sorts of discussions. I, I think we have in our secretary someone who is absolutely accepted as somebody who doesn't care about any of that stuff. He just wants to move the ball downfield. Uh, he, he spent several hours yesterday in testimony to the House Armed Services Committee, and you know, I, I thought the level of acceptance of the Congress or by the Congress of him is, is extraordinary. So we're going to be reshaping the budget to fit the priorities that we say we have. Um, we're going to do our very best to deliver value for the money that the American taxpayers have given us because uh, we've done very well in the budget this year. Now, an important part of doing well for the taxpayer is to speed things up. I started out the day by saying we've kind of been on holiday for 25 years. Um, it is always shocking to me to hear myself say this, but you know, I turned 69 this year. So I can, I don't have to read in history books, I can remember when <laughs> I, I participated in programs which moved at light speed. Uh, okay, this country knows how to do things urgently when we're frightened or, you know, when there's a major priority. Um, I had the privilege of, of speaking with Chairman Thornberry a couple of weeks ago, uh, just in a private meeting, and he was asked, what, what can you do to make things move faster? Because, you know, when I hear reports that it takes 16 years to go from statement of need to initial operational capability, I don't even care if the number is right. <laughs> well, even if it's not exactly right, it's so far wrong that it's unacceptable. What, what can you do to bring that into a small number of years? And I said, well, sir, my, my immediate reaction is you can either, we can either keep our processes or we can keep our preeminence, but we cannot have both. We've become a process-driven acquisition and development culture where our primary goal seems to be to make sure that we never make a mistake in acquisition, we never have a protest, we never make a wrong technical choice, and we spend so much time trying to prevent a mistake that the cost of not making a mistake in the large is bigger than the mistake. I mean, at some point, try something and see if it works. And, and that's what I think the Congress was going after when they created my position. Um, but I mean, I can, I can cite specific figures of things that this nation used to do. I, I believe it is true, I hope I don't misremember the number, um, that we developed the SR-71 in 22 months from a standing start. Uh, I, I, I know for a fact that it was 32 months from contract award to first flight of the first F-117A stealth fighter a technology we had never done before at all in any field. And we built an airplane with fly-by-wire control systems and stealth capabilities, and it was pivotal, pivotal in the first Gulf War. And we had it on the ramp in 32 months. It would take 32 months today, we'd still be arguing about the requirements. I, I mean, that's not a joke. That's not, that's not a hyperbolic statement. We would be spending 32 months to argue about what the requirements for the stealth fighter should be. Um, I, I personally um, was the chief engineer, project engineer, whatever you would want to call them, on um, an SDIO mission, uh, 
an intelligence gathering mission that did reconnoitering on the first Soviet boosters in powered flight, where we watched them come up off the pad, do staging, inject payloads into orbit. Um, the other name for those was targets. All right. So, you know, if you're going to shoot at a target, you really need to know what it looked like. And we did not have any, we did not have any defense intelligence information on what rockets looked like in powered flight. So we put together a mission that would make those measurements in several spectra, and we built and flew it in 13 months from a standing start. Um, you know, I, in, in, in another mission that we did in something like 30 months, I, I, don't shoot me if I have it wrong by a few weeks, we put together a similar intelligence gathering mission that looked at our own reentry vehicles during mid-course flight. What does a reentry vehicle look like in mid-course flight to the sensors which have to shoot it? We did that in 30 months. Um, I was, I was for a time until I did something else. I was chief engineer on that one as well. In the early years of SDIO, I I was privileged to be again the project engineer on the first space intercept we ever did in this country against a booster in powered flight. From the time that Lieutenant General Abramson, the first director of Missile Defense Agency, said go, which was in May of of. Um, 1985, seems like a long time ago now, uh, until the intercept, which we executed in September of 1986, was 16 months from nothing. Now, no one argues that those systems that we developed were uh, ready for production. In fact, they were prototypes to demonstrate that you could do what you were trying to do at all. Our first interceptor weighed a ton, liter literally weighed a ton. That's not tactically traceable. That's not, the, that's not the point. The point is to demonstrate that you can do it at all. As P.T. Barnum said once famously about waltzing bears, the miracle is not how well the bear waltzes, but that it can waltz at all. So in developing new systems, we have to move at that kind of a pace. You know, think F-117, don't think F-35 when you talk about our development pace. Now, you know, the F-35 is proving to be an incredible weapons platform, an incredible warfighting platform, um, but no one wants to repeat that acquisition cycle. Neither the government nor the contractor want to repeat that acquisition cycle. So my answer to your, my long-winded answer to your question is, those of us who are nearing the end of our career do not have to read about it in books. We can remember when we participated in programs that developed systems along the time frame that our adversaries are now doing. We can do that. Again, we just have to allow ourselves, and that will be part of my job. And, and, that's, and it's a leadership issue, and it's managing expectations, I think, of the Congress, because I was just talking about this the other day. Sometimes the Congress just expects every intercept test that we have to be a success. They don't, they don't understand that sometimes the SM-3-2A is going to have a missed intercept, and you're going to learn from that, those mistakes. Well, the SM-3-2A SM miss um, was the first version of this built by our Japanese partners in certain areas. But that was actually not the cause of the miss. Um, you know, I, I don't want to at this point go public with the issue, but the miss, the, 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 the flaw was in a highly standardized component that's used in other areas. And, you know, I'm glad we spotted it because our question will be, you know, is this a fleet issue or not? Because it's in other fleets. <laughs> the component in question is used in other areas than just what we do in SM32A. So if you if you don't test and find flaws, you 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 lead yourself down the garden path. And 
And then you made a great point. You talked about the confidence you have in our current homeland missile defense system, the ground-based mid-course defense system. And there's a, there's a lot of uh, mischaracterization of that program because people tend to look at the, the history of the, the entire testing record and, and sort of judge and condemn the system based on the whole testing record, which the early prototypes that we use for intercept tests are not the ones that are in the ground today. Yeah, so. I, I have shocking news for you. Our early interceptors were not as good as the ones we're putting in the ground today. <laughs> I, I, I know that that upends your world, but the early interceptors that we put in the ground at Fort Greeley and Vandenberg are not as good as the ones we have today. Go figure. So, mind blowing. Yeah. Anyway. Um, and with, I want to save some time for, for questions from the audience. So, if, if um, you all have um, questions, we'll go back here first and then we'll come up to the front row. The, right behind the gentleman with the pin. Yes, sir. I mean, and also I can run a bit over if you need to. Oh. We're, we have a little bit of slack for our next engagement okay. over on the hill. Mr. Secretary, I'm Jay Donnelly. I work with Huntington Ingalls Industries. Anybody we have a, vulnerable, a vulnerability today with drones. Uh, drones from Iran are flying centerline right down our ships in the Straits of Hormuz. The plowshares are flying drones over our nuclear weapons facilities in Kings Bay and Bangor. And in the not-too-distant future, you could certainly envision swarming drones as being a threat. Yep. Is there anything in R&E uh, in your priorities that would address uh, that somewhat immediate threat? Well, yes, uh, although nothing as rapidly as we would like. So the swarming drone problem is, is something that we absolutely see and recognize and are very, very concerned about. Um, so there are two issues there. One is, of course, you have to have just plain enough enough shooters to 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 take out the number of drones that you have. Now, as we look toward the future, I you know, frankly, I think our DE capabilities today, our directed energy capabilities, are very close to the point where uh, they are an effective countermeasure against swarming drones. The other uh, we, meaning we don't have to necessarily shoot bullets at them to get them, although I don't object to that. Uh, but the other part of the issue, the really difficult part of the issue, is the acquisition, targeting, and fire control. Um, and, and that's where I'm frankly looking to advances in AI for uh, artificial intelligence machine learning for a solution. Uh, the problem there is, you know, I mean, if you're a human being or even a crew of human beings and you're in a B-17 over Europe in World War II and you see half a dozen attacking Messerschmitts, your, your B-17 crew can probably deal with that. They can't deal, you know, if they can probably deal with six. They can't deal with 106. You know, as Stalin famously said, quantity has a quality all of its own. Um, uh, a human crew just can't deal with that many. I don't know what the threshold is, is but 100 is going to be beyond it. So a swarming drone attack is of concern just because of, of the mass. But an AI system, uh, I hope, can be trained to deal with just such things. I mean, they, in, in mathematical terms, <laughs> You know, I, I like to fall back on the geek that I am. The, the targeting problem for swarming drones is, is a version of what's called the traveling salesman problem in linear programming. Um, it's a tough problem, and in fact, you can prove that there is no optimal solution available to you, but there are some pretty good solutions, and you can prove that they're pretty good. Um, if we can implement, you know, some of those kinds of solutions in an AI scheme, which appropriately prioritizes the ones which are some combination of the ones which are nearer, the ones which are faster, the ones which are apparently headed for the more crucial targets. You know, that seems like to me exactly the type of challenge that we want to use AI to go after. Um, are we there yet? No. Do, do we recognize it as a problem? Yes. Do we have some thoughts we want to try on it? Yes. So with all deliberate speed, we'll, we're moving out on that one. Uh, I'm not going to pick. <laughs> pick. We'll go here, the gentleman up front here, and then I'll go back to 
Sure, Byron Callen. I'm an analyst at Capital Alpha Partners. I want to pick a little bit at research and development resources. When you look at the RD&T spending profile for the department, do you have the right mix between 616263? It should more be for 6465 to get a little wonky on this. And then for contractors, how do you incentivize the industry to spend more on R&D? Because we're still looking at 2% for most companies of their sales. Is that adequate in this type of environment? Well, I'll answer the second question first. 2% is not an adequate R&D budget for America writ large, whether government or corporate. Okay, we the historically accepted figure is more like 10%. I'm not here to tell you that it needs to be 10.0, but two is wrong. Um, in the old days at NASA, the first time I was at NASA in the early 70s, our R&D budget was, was like 10%. And we were then a very vital organization. Um, I, I think you need something like that to, to be properly funding the future. Uh, our mix between 6-1 and 2-3, and 4-5, I don't know yet. I, you know, I, it's easy to say, well, it's probably not what we want it to be, but I don't actually yet have enough time on target to know. I, I know that I want, I want to return us to an era where prototyping is king before we get into production. And my counterpart, Ellen Lord, in ANS wants exactly the same thing. You know, by the time she gets ready to sign off on Milestone C for production, you know, she wants to know that we're buying the right thing. And the way we've been doing it for some decades now doesn't, it doesn't allow us to wring out the bugs until too late in the acquisition cycle and it costs too much money and takes too much time. Thank you. Uh, Matt Jones with the Boeing Company. First of all, I want, just want to say thanks for coming back and taking this job. We're really glad you're there. Yeah, I'm um, glad I have enough money to fund it. <laughs> um, <laughs> some of the examples you gave earlier of when we were successful in going fast um, were great examples. What came to my mind was that the, one of the key aspects of that were the right people with the right authorities. Do you feel like you have enough leverage to pull to make sure you have people with the right skills, experience, judgment to get us back to going fast, sir? Good question. We have the right authorities. The Congress has been very generous in the authorities that they've given us um, to hire people, to execute programs quickly. Uh, they've given us a rapid innovation fund, which I plan to use. Uh, I. I can really only offer praise to the Hill for the for their recognition of the issue and their uh, rather strong lean forward posture in, in trying to give us what we need. Um, getting the right people uh, is frankly not that difficult. People will make enormous sacrifices to work on these kinds of things if they believe we're for real. Um, it's been a while, you know, the, the kinds of things we're talking about here were not a priority for the last administration. They, they just weren't. Um, when the very best people see that returning America to a position of unchallenged preeminence across all the domains we must have it, uh, when they see that as a real priority matched by real money and real programs, they will be, in my prior experience, frankly, clamoring at the door to join, to join the team. I mean, that's what people do. And frankly, on the other side, I've seen again from personal experience that when you crank up the, the demands for excellence, excellence at speed, uh, the people who can't cut it self-select out. They decide to go do something else. Go here, and then take the last one over here. Can you use the microphone? Um, the Small Business Innovation Research Program has seen a lot of change over the years. One of the, and it's one of the major sources of uh, of uh, ideas, development, research. 
there are two problems. One of it is process. The process system, what it takes for a small company to deal with the Department of Defense is still very cumbersome. And number two, there is a valley of death between the SBIR program and what follows. If we are going to move fast, this problem has to be solved. I wonder what's, um, what's your opinion of what is done there? Well, I, uh, I get a lot of questions like that, that it's difficult for companies to deal with the Department of Defense. And, and frankly, I've served other places in the U.S. government. It's, deal, it's difficult for companies to deal with any part of the U.S. government. That's a fact. Uh, it is in our interest to make it easier for you to deal with us, and that relates to the authorities we've been given by Congress for different contracting mechanisms. So I'm going to throw the first part of your question, I'm going to throw that challenge back at you. When you see an RFP come out, or when you are, if you put in an SBIR proposal, and what you get back from the department is unnecessarily cumbersome or bureaucratic, raise the game, okay? Identify what you think is non-value added and bring it back to our attention. Go above SBIR, okay? Come, come to our office and tell, I own SBIR for the department now. So go above SBIR and, and try them first. But if, you, if, if they don't agree that your objection is valid, raise it, raise it to a higher level and we'll, we'll look at it. I am on the lookout for non-value-added processes, but I can't identify them by myself. I could spend all day looking at stuff and, and I would never get anything else done. Pardon? Yes, okay, so bring to us what you think is not value added, and, and we'll look at it. We will. The Secretary has made exactly that same point to larger industry. Tell us what you think is broken, and we'll look at it. We won't guarantee to decide in your favor, but you'll get a hearing. The second part of your thing, question, how to deal with the valley of death, well, okay, the reality is that most things that come out of SBIR should die. Okay, I mean, just because someone has a clever new idea does not mean it's a good idea. The purpose of, of DARPA seedlings and SBIR programs and other innovative ways to try new ideas out is to see if they're good. Now, how to get the good ones through the valley of death? Uh, I mean, this is a long-held problem. I, you know, I don't... I don't know that I know yet. I recognize it as a problem. You know, once, once we like an idea, how do we find a champion for it to move it into prototyping and eventually production? I don't know yet. I would be more than willing to have suggestions on that point. What, what we can do once something works to move it along. I'm sorry to go limp on you. I just don't, I don't know. If I thought I knew, I wouldn't keep it a secret. <laughs> One more question. Hi, uh, Justin Doubleday with Inside Defense. Um, yesterday, Secretary Mattis mentioned that you'd be setting up joint program offices for hypersonics um, and for AI. And obviously, the first thing you hear, or you think when you hear uh, JPO is F-35 JPO. So I'm wondering, what is your vision for these these new JPOs and how they'll um, help you get at these technologies? Well, I, I, I think the Secretary was speaking loosely and when he used the word joint okay I, I don't so so if you'll pardon me joint program office has is a specific term of art that relates to you know specific legal bureaucratic creation um, I don't know at, at, I, in fact I doubt that that is exactly what we're going to do uh, the secretary did say, and if you would allow me to rephrase his words just slightly, we are creating a joint um, artificial intelligence center. Now, the jointness will be will include elements of the intelligence community as well. Okay, so it will be cross-cutting across services in the intelligence community. It 
it uh, we're, we we are and in fact my organization is charged with looking at structural alternatives on how we would create it where we would locate it who would who would head it um, who would be participating in it uh, we owe a report to Congress on that by 90 days from some date a couple of weeks in the past so sometime in midsummer I owe a report to Congress on exactly how we're going to go and do that so that we are going to do it is not in doubt um, that it will be joint across not only portions of the department but outside the department is not in doubt um, how exactly we're going to set it up still studying when we know when, when we've made a decision we're not going to keep it secret it, we'll tell you but I can't tell you that I got an answer today I don't think you should be thinking how, however I'll say I don't think you should be thinking about a construct that's like the F-35 JPO that's, that's probably not in the cards Mike thank you so much please join me in thanking the Undersecretary thank you